The Human Enterprise is a conversation with leaders, entrepreneurs, investors, and ordinary people about what makes work meaningful, what makes work work, and how to drive the best performance from the people that make up the enterprise. We talk about how to create business value through culture, leadership, digital innovation, and the employee experience. What are those unmistakably human touches that make an enterprise great, and what can we learn from them? My guest today is Marcelo Modica, who is the Chief People Officer at Mercer Consulting, the world's leading human resource consulting business, advising 30,000 clients and their 110 million employees worldwide on talent strategy, remuneration, benefits and financial wellness. In this episode, we talk about pace of change. If you're not changing, I'd be nervous. The balance between the soul and software. There's definitely a continuum between all tech and all purpose, and you know the answer is certainly somewhere in between, for sure. And what matters, really, at the end of the day? Just recognizing the little things, whether it's a promotion, you know, a grandchild, whatever it is, just recognizing being human. You can follow Marcelo on Twitter at Marcelo7M and as ever you can find me at Barney Lowe. Marcelo has a fascinating perspective over complex organisations that he distills into zen-like clarity. You're going to find this really interesting. I certainly did. Enjoy. So if the task of advising these 110 million people doesn't epitomize human enterprise, I don't know what does. Marcelo, welcome to the human enterprise and thank you for joining me. Thank you, Barney. Happy to be here. Well, Marcelo, let's let's sort of kick off with what does the future of work mean to you? Yeah, it, it's, it's such a profound but yet awesome question because to me, the future of work is about the humanity of work, is, is the humans being humans. Um, and just for some quick context is that for most of my career and certainly beforehand, the more humans operated like robots in terms of the ability to like process data in a certain way, the more successful they were. And as we know, as, as each year goes on, we're peeling away the, the need for that kind of analysis and leaning much more so to what does it mean? And so that plays into the, the idea of humans, right? The empathy, uh, mixing empathy with judgment and actually what does it mean? And, you know, like, like most professionals, they would spend most of their time analyzing, you know, like crunching data and then running to a meeting and then trying to put meaning to it uh, on the way. And now the ability to actually spend much more time thinking about meaning. So I think to me that that's probably the most interesting and exciting. about. So that's what we sort of hold up as... The promise of the future of work. Yeah. Is there a shortfall that we're trying to catch up on? And what is that shortfall? Yeah, I mean, geez, you could, well, first of all, you could read any headline and, and they say that, you know, robots are going to take something like, I don't know, 7 million to 500 million jobs away in the next 10 to 20 years. So the shortfall is just, you know, what's the elegant switch between, you know, humans doing work that machines can do versus work that only humans can do? So to me, I think there's that. Uh, there's that inflection point. That's the biggest challenge today. So when you think about 
what are those uniquely sort of human characteristics of your resources, right? Um, will that require a different way of looking at the individuals within your business and the way that you recruit them and the way that you give them opportunities to learn? And, and what are those kind of critical points? Yeah, well, you know, on top of this, this inflection point of machines and people, to me also, um, you know, what's very exciting is that, you know, people have choices, uh, at least they do today, as to where they want to work. So the idea of, of companies that are strong on purpose is going to attract the best and the brightest. So I think there's, there's a bit table stakes that if you're going to be relevant in the modern world, you need to have a company that really believes in something, regardless of what you do. Um, some industries, maybe it's easier than others. Um, for example, at Mercer, advancing health, wealth, and career people is pretty genuine. That's not manufactured. But whatever, there's, whatever companies are selling, they're putting their their money where where it counts, whether it's trying to solve for you know poverty or giving back or you know whatever their their technique is. So I, one of the constructs that I think is quite interesting is that you know for most generations there's been a learning model that's been around an apprenticeship, which is you know maybe they have a training program, maybe they don't, but you sit by my side, do as I do, wax on, wax off, whatever analogy you want. And in the future, I think the change will happen so quickly that you need to have individuals that can just adapt to what's needed that day. Um, this is a very profound statement, and I, I, would, I don't want anyone to think on this podcast that we're there. We're not. But I, I think the construct of learning and how you hire, what you have people do, is going to change uh, much more people demand. say that the half-life of skills shifts from, is it 25 years, you know, which is almost a career long kind of set of skills that can take you from, you know, your, your, your first apprenticeship through to when actually you're, 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 you're managing people and where the skill sets are more around management skill sets. But so the half-life goes from 25 years to five years, yeah. which means that for a lot of people within the Mercer organization, for example, would need to retrain themselves every five years. Yeah. I mean, from a planning perspective, how are you helping to make that a reality at Mercer? Or yeah, it's it's interesting because you know what we do for a living is deliver an experience to customers and co-creating with them often, and but being deep experts in certain things. So, so to me, I, I feel that there's there's a need for expertise, and then but maybe the amount of people that are those experts get smaller while you have many more generalists that, to your point, can you know bob and weave and go to where the problems are in the world. And for us, I think that's the biggest thing is that we're, you know, I think like many companies, you sort of start out selling a product. Um, but, you know, our, the conversation with our clients has changed, which is, you know, th like this conversation is could literally be a conversation with a client, which is what are what are the things you worried about? You know, are you worried about people? Are you worried about technology? Are you worried about both? Where are you? That leads to a different type of conversation with a client, which I think creates deeper relationships. And as I said before, that's very human. Uh, the ability to connect with people, how you deliver the work is going to now change. And so I think it's never losing sight of what you stand for. How you deliver it is just a point in time. So you started by talking about automation, for example. Um, and if we think about m maybe things like recruitment, so bringing the right people into the business in the first case. Yeah. Um, do you see ways that technology is, is helping you do that? 
Well, there are some people who think it's a distraction. Actually, it's taking the best recruiters away from actually the human introduction to what's going to be hopefully, you know, a long-term marriage or relationship between employee and the business. I mean, what's your view about can uh, sort of technology help in things like recruitment and development and learning? I, I think it can help dramatically. You know, I, I think uh, recruiting in general is incredibly more efficient than ever before. I can remember the days when the internet first started and you can actually post a job online. There were no filters and you could post a job and, you know, 2,000 people could apply and someone, the only way to actually manage that was to literally go through everyone. Now the techniques around identifying the combination of things that you're looking for is super, is super, right? And you can get to the right short list of the 2,000 to the five people very quickly. Uh, I think that's also true with regard to learning. Um, you know, it is a one of the most exciting things about being in HR these days is how learning has changed. You know, there was a time when the only way you could learn was literally showing up to a classroom, which is where you got delivered heavy books, and the learning happened in the classroom. And what we know today, and this is not going to be new to your listeners, is that, you know, learning happens outside of the classroom. And if you're going to bring people together, the learning that happens in the room is about the conversation and the application of it, not cracking open the, the textbook for the first time. So that is massively incredibly interesting, right? So that, that just makes the learning accelerate. accelerate. And, and what do you observe about the people who you're recruiting? I suppose across the business. I always resent when people say millennials think X, Y, and Z, because I always identify as a millennial yeah. who expects an awful lot from an employer. So, I mean, when you think about new people that you're recruiting into the business, what are their changing expectations of you as a potential employer? Yeah. Well, first of all, millennials are, are, you know, are a lot like most of us. Um, I think the difference is that they had a lot more choices to act on, whereas, you know, earlier generations didn't have as many choices. But their needs and wants are good, are the same as the next generation following them and the generation that preceded them. So I think people in general, to answer your question, what's in it for me? Right. What's in it for me? And so the relationship with the employer has to be quite dynamic. You know, there was a time when people would start and end their career in the same company. Um, you know, that just may not be right. The employer may not want that and the employee may not want that. But when they're on the road together, that should be incredibly meaningful. So individuals are looking to learn. They want to live. They want to work in an environment that has, a, as I said before, a great purpose. Uh, they want to be in a place that um, the work is interesting, where they can learn. They feel like they're learning, and what they can, con what they're contributing, is what they're getting in return. And an employer, the the burden is on that people manager to be able to deliver that, because if they do that well, the whole formula works. The company thrives, the manager thrives, the individual thrives. When they don't, they don't become an employer of choice. And guess what? You know your competitors do. So there's a lot riding on that relationship today. And it's much more dynamic than ever before. So that's kind of interesting because, you, you know, we flip between the people manager and individual, also known as a boss, I suppose, versus the employer. And we all know that there's a huge gulf between your average people manager and their employer. They can have very different styles. They can have different values. Um, I read something the other day about, uh, you, you know, the mistake of relying on technology like CultureAmp, which is uh, a technology used to give feedback and to gauge sort of interest uh, from employers. And it was um, an observation that, you know, you can't rely on a technology platform to develop culture. Um, 
But interestingly, my thought was, well, you, you, that's true, you absolutely can't. But some of the feedback tools around giving regular feedback, is that 15.5 or CultureAmp or some of these other kind of tools, Zugata, um, can help create that muscle memory of people managers so that they are behaving more in a regulated way, in a way that, that their employees want them to. Um, how do you see that overlap between what a people manager is, is how they're interacting with employees versus what you hope the employer is, is giving to them? Yeah, I mean, I, what you're getting to is that top-down doesn't work. Um, you know, I think to be successful in that, that formula you just described, the importance of transparency, right? So the, the benefit of senior leaders is that they can reach many lives at one time, right? So whether it's through social media, through like a Twitter account or old-fashioned as an email, they have the ability to reach the masses, but their reach is quite narrow, right? So it's, it's wide, but, but, but not deep. It really, for it to come to life, that people manager has to be in sync with that message. And so the need for transparency and not, you know, sugarcoating or caveating um, nowadays uh, falls really, you know, if, if you're not being transparent with your leaders, it won't work, right? Because to your point, they don't have to be connected to what manager is saying. They have to be connected to the work where the work is. Mm -hmm. So to me, I've always believed that the people manager is probably is one of the most important elements of the success of an organization. If those if those individuals, first of all, aren't trained, aren't excited about people management, you know, that's a choice that they make to do that role, um, and they don't have the tools and information, um, you know, it's very hard to win hearts and minds of colleagues. So you can just manage a situation when management sends out some information, and the manager and the colleague are learning about it at the same time. Now, if you have a great culture and it all works, that, that leader can adapt and say, hey, look, I believe in management, and so it works. But, you know, it, it can often fall flat on its face, right? So you, the ability to actually even give that leader a little bit of a platform to understand why, and why is this decision better than what we had before, is critical. And if without it, it won't work. The organization culture won't thrive. So that's a big challenge for you. How yeah. do you successfully communicate that to people managers? Yeah. Um, well, first, I think in general, companies have to be quite dynamic in how they communicate, right? The attention span of, of colleagues is getting shorter and shorter. By the way, we're all guilty of that in our own lives, right? So if the headline isn't interesting, um, you probably won't read an article. And in, inside a company, the same is true. We, we, we have the ability today to track what people are reading and what they're not reading. So we know when something's successful and we know when something's not successful. So, so one, I just think in general, leadership has a responsibility to keep the platform dynamic whether it's through a short video, through its voicemail, uh, through its an email, whatever the platform is, keeping that dynamic. On the manager, is it's about one, uh, don't surprise them, right? As an organization, you can, you can sort of manage your messaging throughout the year. In many cases, things happen on a cyclical basis. So giving managers the, the wash and repeat view of what information is going to be coming, when it's going to come, and if there's something important, give them the benefit of time to ask a question. You know, we often talk about this concept of the marathon effect. Uh, the marathon effect is if you ever watch a marathon, you know, the elite runners go first. And, you know, for the average guy, by the way, I don't run, but if the average guy, by the time they actually get to start the race, it's very likely that those elite runners are pretty close to the end, right? So that's the same way messaging happens, right? Senior leadership spends a lot of time thinking about the idea 
they're, they've thought it so deeply, by the time they tell people about it, they're ready to move on to the next decision. But the truth is that marathon effect happens at that moment. The day you communicate for the first time to a leader about something is the first day they have the, the ability to digest it, interpret it, figure out what it means, and very importantly, ask questions. So to me, that, that's, that understanding that change management journey is really important, and that's success or failure. And do you subscribe to the view of, I mean, I think employee handbook is probably not a useful term, but I think that that, that notion of a sort of a cultural manifesto about the values that we believe in and the behaviors we expect and um, spending time getting people to understand those things. Is that, how do you approach that in a large organization like Marissa? This might sound a little controversial, but I think there are certain things that we believe are table stakes, like integrity. Just because you put that word on the wall doesn't necessarily mean that that it's actually happening. So I think what we've started to do much more so is not delight ourselves with words, but through actions. So if someone isn't acting with integrity, we have to address it. If someone is acting with integrity, we want to point that out as, wow, what a great way to handle this issue. So much more storytelling in, in the moment of what's happening as opposed to just you know platitudes about how people should behave. We know that, that they're just not effective. Um, you know, people come to work every day, they look around, and, and, and that's the culture. What they see is the culture, and that's what you have to address is the behaviors, not so much the, the window dressing, if you will. And, and so I think that's a good kind of segue into a question I wanted to ask you about around the connection between brand and culture. Yeah. So here yeah. you are. Uh, do you see yourself as custodian of the culture? Absolutely. Well, yeah. So Absolutely. here you are, custodian of the culture and, and the values of the individuals that you're bringing into the business, as well as apparently the behaviors, right? Making sure that they are uh, on message to the behaviors. On the flip side, there's the external brand and the values and the behaviors and experiences that, that, that it's delivering externally. How is that? I mean, do you see that same connection? And, and if so, how has that changed your relationship with the brand custodians? Yeah, it's a, it's a great, this is a great question. Um, you know, I think there was a time when companies would go after an employment brand that would be different than their external brand. And, you know, my view is that I think they're one and the same. Um, and, and for a lot of reasons, most simply that if the employee can't see themselves in the external brand, then there's a disconnect. They won't deliver against that brand. So for me, there is a, there's, there's one brand. Um, and I, th I think where, where it comes to colleagues, it ends up being about what are the commitments that they have to meet to deliver on that brand and the messaging and, you know, the, the conversation. So, for example, if you say for, um, you want to delight customers, um, what does that mean? Delighting customers may or may not mean give them everything they want. It's about balancing what, listening to what they're asking for and being able to deliver it in the best way possible. But it's not necessarily giving them whatever they want because that may not, that may not scale, it may not work, it may not, be, may not live to your values and your, and your culture and your brand. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And then in bringing that to life, but I, I, I mean, these things aren't revolutionary by any stretch, are they? The, yeah. This has kind of been the same way forever. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. Um, did, 
did we or did the business ever take its eye off the ball when it comes to values? Do you use? I mean, you're a psychologist by by training, I right? You. <laughs> so I'm just interested in your perspective there. You know, is this something that's becoming more important for us to understand, or or have we all or has this always been a key concern of? A chief legal officer. It, it's it's a very profound question, and we should discuss it over drinks at some point. But you know, I, I think if you look at the evolution of companies, right? If you start out, if you, if your company is twenty people in a room, you know, every colleague can see the look on the face of the leader when things go well and they don't go well. The the leader can be very deliberate about what's important, what's not important. Everyone's in the same room. You know, over the course of history, you know, companies have gotten bigger and, you know, messaging became impossible and it was only paper-based. And then the internet came along and suddenly you can connect with people. And so to me, I think it just, there's, you know, it's not so much the importance of it, but what's the platform, right? So suddenly five, six years ago, it all became about platforms. Now you have the ability to communicate in a dynamic way. Um, it's very much two-way. It's not just about me telling you, it's about you telling me probably whether you say it internally or through Glassdoor or other methods that are outside. So I always think that was very important. I just think the agility of an organization to keep up with what's the relevant way to communicate in that moment. I mean, think about gaming as an example. The the, the idea that, you know, and my, my son does a little bit of gaming, that they, they can have headphones on and they can have strategic conversation with, with each other, with, with friends at different locations about how to play that game without actually even being in the same room. And, and by the way, that it's not just about, you know, it's, it's gaming perhaps, but it's not. It's really strategy. So, so I, I think we just have to keep adapting to where the world is taking information and flow. Um, and I imagine in the next, you know, five, ten years, we're going to be challenged to, to answer this question in new and different ways that we don't even know about yet. Yeah. And, and the, the role of leadership in living the values and, and the cultures is... Is that just one kind of tool in, in your armory or, or has it always got to come and be exemplary from, from leaders in the business? You know, I said before, transparency is really important. If you're not living those words, you'll get called out on it. Uh, and we've seen that in many consumer you know, product companies where they say one thing and their employees today rise up and say, actually, that doesn't happen in our company. So I think authenticity and transparency are very important. If they're not living it, you know, your your employees will call you out on it. When it comes to driving business performance, um, you know, it's often struck me that, that, that it's amazing that when you think about a sporting team or, or, or a gamer who's getting immediate sort of feedback about their performance, uh, how little feedback on performance there is available on work and yet there's a ton of data through workforce analytics to help give people clues about their efficiency and productivity at work yeah. i mean what's your what's your kind of refreshed view on performance and how, how do you with a carrot not a stick drive good performance through the organization yeah well first of all it has to be every day right so the you know the old-fashioned notion of, hey, you know, gather up all your information for 12 months and unload it, you know, back up the truck and dump it on someone is, you know, is not an effective way to lead or manage. And, you know, no one should be surprised at the end of the year. The surprise perhaps might be just, you know, how did all the results of the firm come together? And just because it's, you know, it it's could be 
could be um, confidential information. But but the idea, and we believe in this, is that you know feedback every day, right? That you can you can ask for feedback, you can deliver feedback every day, and and that conversation needs to happen. So I I, I actually in my own I've I've done this my whole career. I've never you know that's not in my mind something new. I learned very early as a leader that if you don't communicate with someone about things that aren't going right when they're small, by the time they're big, it's too late, right? You're pretty frustrated, they're surprised, bad things can happen. So so I think the, the technology's allowed us to actually have much more of a two-way conversation. And you were alluding to this before, but you know, the ability to do network analysis seeing what interactions people have some of the examples you gave like zugata which is a, is a great idea and concept company we've done some work with where you can actually see the relationships people have with each other and you can see the absence of relationships that maybe should be happening so the ability to use data not the volume of it but the insights of it to actually help people you know guide them to better choices um, we all want feedback there isn't anyone that doesn't want feedback and so i think today there's many more ways in which you can deliver that, that that actually can be very constructive. And then what are the limits to that? So when do you start freaking out your employees around, you know, about the use of that data? Yeah. What are the thresholds uh, that, that you've seen? Yeah, I, I, this is a great question too. And I suspect if you ask 50 people at a very, it'll have 50 different answers. I mean, let's face it, in personal life, we share a lot of information about ourselves with strangers. Um, and that's becoming, you know, very much a cultural norm, a societal norm, you know, to, to just, you know, be more transparent. I, I suspect that there's going to be a tipping point inside the company where that's going to be the case, where, you know, the information, by the way, today may come from a human. In the future, it may not come from a human. You know, you may, you'll be suggested uh, to, to do certain things by technology the same way that, you know, out in the world, when you shop on certain sites, they'll make suggestions to you about what you should purchase to complement what you just bought. So I think the, the, the way in which information will flow uh, will be broader. And by the way, some cases, it's a lot easier for a human to receive developmental information from an agnostic source as opposed to someone who they, they work for. We've seen that. So are you doing that in terms of... Um the network analysis the people yeah. you're collaborating with and productivity are you surfacing yes. that to people absolutely absolutely right. and i i think for us we're at the beginning of that journey but we're already seeing the the positive effects of that do you have transparent ethical rules about how you're implementing that you know Ginny rometti kind of talks around yeah. the you've got to be up front around around the ethical eth yeah. ethics of ai right. and around not how you let the machines go off and develop their algorithms. You, you're a parent to that machine, yeah. and you've got a parent. I mean, how how are you dealing with with that here? Yeah, it's a it's a good question. Yeah, I, and I think positive intent. You know, I, I think and I think slow. Um, you know, if you unload a bunch of new ways in which you're going to look and measure and prod people, uh, regardless of what the platform is, nobody wants that. That's not that's not productive. So I think little by little. Uh, showing them where it's useful, they get more comfortable with the idea of actually receiving information that way. Um, and as I said, positive intent. You can't say to someone, we're going to use this for developmental purposes, and then the next day say, by the way, you didn't do this right, and now you're going to penalize. So, so I, I, you know, I think that's probably the best example of where it can go wrong. Because again, um, people, uh, when you look at assessments, 
um, and sort of aptitude tests. I mean, I think that's a good example. I love doing them. Right? You take them for what they're worth, right? Yeah. And not you know, deliver the truth by any means, but they give you a benchmark. Yeah. I mean, are you are you using aptitudes in yeah. recruitment or in development here? We're, and how are they working? Yeah, we are. I mean, you know, it, with recruitment, I think you have to take everything with a grain of salt, right? So you can't use, and I think this is true for internal assessments, is that you can't you can't abuse a, a, an instrument. Um, but we we have we we've gotten much more into using neuroscience, um, and for us, one of the things that we start to measure for leadership, in particular, is about future proofing. You know, if you think about leaders in the past, you know, you'd say, well, this person needs to have 10 or 20 years of experience. And, and that was the criteria for them to get those roles. Today, having 20 years of experience could be an asset or could be a liability, right? That, that could suggest they only know how to do it that way. So we're, we're using these instruments to look much more at um, dealing with ambiguity, their ability to recover, their ability to adapt to change, and using that as a developmental tool and make, helping them make you know, career choices about, you know, if, if they have a really hard time with change, maybe they shouldn't be in a role that's at the cutting edge of change, right? Maybe they need to be in a role where someone else does that. And when it's a little bit more baked, then, you know, they take that next step and, and make it make it future proof, right? There's a place where people fall in that continuum. But we're finding it, we're help making us, helping us make better choices and helping us give people, particularly leaders, better developmental feedback than before. And from an organizational point of view, do you have a sort of blueprint that enables you to look at long-term kind of resource planning to say, I need 5% of flexible generalists and 15% yeah. of numeric sort of analysts? I mean, are you, are you at that stage yet or are you kind of just approaching the stage? Of I, I think we're approaching it in just because it has to do with the nature of our business, right? Our, we don't make a product. You know, we have people that deliver solutions and discuss with and consult with clients and give them advice. So planning for that is a little bit different than looking at, you know, production of products and services and how, you know, like how 5G is going to revolutionize the way a, you know, an assembly plant is going to look. You know, we don't have that issue, but that employer is going to have an issue that we can help them with. So, so for us, I think the angle we're focusing more on is how do we take out of the system repeatable tasks, uh, friction points, let them be much more focused on clients, less on operational work. So for us, I think that's how we're approaching it, is trying to let our, our consultants be much more accessible to clients by taking away things that they probably don't like doing anyway, uh, where we can. So I want to begin wrapping up here, but this is a big question for you, which is, um, I suppose, frameworks and mental models. What, what, what books have impacted the way that you think about business and leadership? And, and why would you recommend people take a look at them? Sure. So I, I think there's probably a couple of books I would recommend. One is more about embracing this reality that we're in. And there's a, there's a book called Machine Platforms and Crowd by uh, Andrew McAfee, which is really, you know, if I give you the punchline, is about if you're not changing, I, be nervous. As opposed to in the past when, you know, you want to create stability, get through the change and look for the stability. 
the reality is that the stability moment is getting smaller and smaller, like the, you know, the the melting of the, the of the uh, the icebergs in, in in the north, and so I, I that's a very interesting book, and I definitely recommend that because I, I think it helps really orient you to what the future is like. The other things that I re- would recommend are just books around purpose that that really galvanize you in terms of what is your value in the in the ecosystem. And so one book that I've read recently is called The Advantage, um, which really talks about having that really deep purpose um, and and that using that as your guide for how you think about your what role you play. That's in the individual's purpose, is it? The company. Oh, the, the company's company purpose. purpose. Okay. Yeah. Like what is it? What is your value in the world as a company? And go deep with that. And, and that helps you decide how you think about your planning, your future, where you invest, etc. Do you ever look, when it comes to budgeting, at the cost of some of the technology and infrastructure that we're putting in place and think, oh my God, a well-placed purpose would be, value, would be <laughs> worth more than all of that investment? I mean... Yeah, yeah, there's, yeah, it's a, you know, there's definitely a continuum between all tech and all purpose. And, you know, the answer is certainly somewhere in between, for sure. Perfect. Okay, three rapid fire questions. I'm looking for quick responses. Um, What is your most successful habit? Getting up early and having time to think before I start my day. What's the secret ingredient to your happiness? Believing in what I do. What's your advice to the next generation? Prepare the generation behind you to be better than what you are. And what are those unmistakably human touches that make an enterprise great? Just recognizing the little things, whether it's a promotion, you know, a grandchild, whatever it is, just recognizing being human. Marcelo, I think that's a great point to to end on. Thank you so much for joining me for this edition of The Human Enterprise. Thank you, Barney. It's been a pleasure.